Good evening. Welcome to episode 31 of the Political Mike podcast. Uh, from a week that started with uh, the acquittal of President, uh, former President Donald J. Trump and ended with uh, a new immigration bill proposed uh, by the House, um, you know, so much has happened in between. Uh, we've seen the Republican Party engage in censorship of their own uh, who have voted for or in favor of impeachment. Um, we have seen uh, so much unfolding in the past uh, few days, and I'm so happy to have the panel I have with me. Uh, the other gentleman will be joining shortly, um, but I'm going to go ahead without further ado and introduce uh, this very distinguished panel so far, and when uh, the other two gentlemen jump in, I'll introduce them. Uh, so first, I want to introduce uh, someone who's no stranger to the Political Mic podcast, Professor Preston Foster. Uh, Professor uh, Foster is the founding president and CEO of whatTheyShouldSay.org, uh, Incorporated. Um, uh, Mr. Foster is the assistant professor and program director of public policy at Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, and is also a regular panelist on w WJOU's monthly issues and policy radio program. Uh, Professor Foster is the former uh, chief marketing officer for educating, uh, I'm sorry, for educational testing services, ETS Interactive Marketing Division. And also, uh, he served as the executive director of communications and public affairs at ETS in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, Foster served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education in the Clinton administration and also won a White House fellowship in 1994. Uh, Professor Foster spent his early career uh, as a national accountant executive at AT&T. Uh, he holds a master's of public administration degree from the Kennedy School at Harvard University and also completed executive studies at the Wharton School of Business. Uh, Professor Foster holds a Bachelor of, of Science uh, in, in Business Administration, a BS in, in Business Administration from Oakland University. Professor Foster, so grateful to have you back. Um, it's always a treat to have you on the, on the program. So I'm looking forward to what you're gonna bring tonight. Thank you, Michael. It's always great to be here. Next, I have a, a new guest, uh, Mr. Stephen Sills. Uh, Stephen uh, is a junior at Stanford uh, University studying history and, and philosophy. Uh, he grew up struggling with homelessness and housing insecurity uh, to be the first in his family uh, to attend an institution like Stanford. Uh, he is the current president of the Stanford College Republicans and spends his time at Stanford advancing conservative principles and ideas. Uh, Stephen, it's such a privilege and honor to have you, sir. I'm grateful to have you. Hopeful, hopefully this is not your last time being here. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And next we have Nate, uh, Nathan Honore, who's no guest to Political Mike as well. Uh, always a treat uh, and, and a pleasure to have him back on. Uh, Nathan is a 2L at Quinnipiac University School of Law in Connecticut with a passion for human rights. Nate, thanks for being back. Uh, and then Ethan Sperla. <laughs> Ethan Sperla, uh, so grateful to have you, sir, uh, is a sophomore at Stanford University. Uh, he's studying economics. Uh, he's from Flint, Michigan, uh, coming from a humble rural background, and he uh, to attend Stanford, he's the current internal vice president of the Stanford College Republicans. Ethan, thanks for being here, man. Um, and then last, uh, but certainly not least at all, uh, Mr. Brian McFadden. Uh, Brian is the host of the Pigskin Party uh, podcast, which focuses on covering uh, the NFL with a dash of humor and a mix of politics, pop culture, and more. He attended Florida State University uh, where he majored in communications. Uh, Brian lived in New York City for 13 years before relocating to the San Francisco Bay Area last year. Such a great panel. I wanna start off the conversation uh, by talking about the immigration reform bill that was introduced uh, by President Biden's allies on Capitol Hill. Uh, the White House announced a sweeping immigration bill uh, today, 
uh, that would create an eight-year uh, pathway to citizenship for millions of immigrants already in the country and providing a faster track for undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. Uh, the, the, the legislation folk, uh, faces an uphill climb, though, in a narrowly divided Congress. Uh, remember, we have a 50-50 Senate, um, and you know the Democrats have lost some ground uh, in the House of Representatives. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi um, has just a five-vote margin, and Senate Democrats do not have the 60 Democratic votes needed uh, to pass the measure with just their party support alone. Um, the administration officials argued yesterday, Wednesday, um, that the legislation was an attempt by President Joe Biden to restart a conversation on overhauling the U.S. immigration system um, and said that he remained open to negotiating. Um, he was in the Senate again for 36 years, um, and he is the first to tell you um, that you know legislation, the legislation process can look different on the other end than where it starts. I'll, you know, I'll start off with you, Stephen. Uh, what do you think about this uh, proposal? Uh, do you think that it would be wise for the Democrats to uh, try to move forward um, with the reconciliation process? Um, or do you, you know, like other conservatives I've heard um, say, look, Biden came to power with this me message of uh, bipartisanship. And so he shouldn't take another step forward if it's not going to uh, get any or significant Republican votes across the aisle. Yeah, well, it's uh, I think it's this is something I think uh, re Republicans and uh, well, we'll certainly fight and I think have an obligation to fight. I, I think it's, uh, but then again, it's, I think there's a way in which negotiation can potentially be brought about in the same way, even like with previous immigration bills that have passed, right? It's, there's always been a concession for um, a pathway to citizenship in exchange for uh, border security, right? And I, I think if some sort of agreement were reached, I think people would be more uh, open to the idea because that's fundamentally what people are concerned about. It's uh, the primary issue is the, the border for a lot of uh, Republicans. And then the, the question of uh, what to do with those who are already here, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we can address maybe after we get there. But, um, and you know, even just like I know it's uh, just like even with DACA, for example, that was the original constitutional concern, right, was that President Obama does, doesn't have, it's not within executive, uh, President Barack Obama's executive prerogative to uh, write laws, so to speak. So, I mean, here is um, a way in which, you know, maybe there's there's a, a way around that. Um, but as it stands, I think it's very unlikely that Republicans are going to uh, support this just because from a political standpoint, if this is allowed to pass, it's very unlikely that Republicans will ever, ever end up in power per se. Again, it's a, you just look at Virginia and uh, California and the way in which, um, you know, most Hispanic immigrants tend to vote. It's just very unlikely that you'll ever, that there will ever be a significant Republican majority in the Senate in that sense. It's a, but then I, I think it's, uh, well, that also demonstrates, I think it's uh, Republicans can do a better job of uh, I think appealing to Hispanic American voters by appealing to traditional family values, right, and the pro-life issue, which a lot of Catholic Hispanic Americans can, uh, you know, agree about sensibly. But it's, uh, yeah, it's just uh, immigration has very strong uh, political ramifications for Republicans if they don't um, oppose this, really. Nate, your thoughts? 
Uh, immigration reform, I think everyone agrees that something is uh, something that absolutely needs to happen as soon as possible. Uh, and as much as I would favor a you know, broad consensus by bipartisan bill, as we all know, governments have to rule by by consensus when when consen a consensus can be reached. But I'm also not going to hold my breath on this bipartisanship issue. Uh, as much as there are people on Capitol Hill who do want to address this this very uh, pressing issue, this, it's also the fact that there's a bunch of people on Capitol Hill who would not refer to Joe Biden as the president-elect until after the certification of the electoral college. And there's a big thing there that, you know, a, a big hurdle that has to be, an elephant in the room, if you will, that has to be addressed first. Now, as far as the 60 vote threshold that needs to be reached to uh, reach us a, a, um, the 60 vote threshold and so that needs to be reached in order to uh, bring uh, an immigration bill to a floor vote, then, you know, I, I don't see, I don't currently see a path to 60. Um, especially without making significant concessions on things like a path to citizenship, the status of dreamers, and things like that. Now, I will say that an absolute priority of this bill, or any bill that reaches uh, President Biden's desk, has to address uh, the detention facilities on the border. It is uh, because these are facilities that were created by the Obama Biden administration in the first place, and even. And even though we can talk about conditions, the fact that they were there in the first place is what allowed the, the Trump administration to enact that family separation policy. So don't, you know, if we don't want a repeat, a repeat of that, because we can all agree that that was a very shameful policy. If we don't want a repeat of what of bad policy, then we cannot leave a framework for that policy to be put into play. So there, there are some standalone bills. Um, you know, this effort comes uh, while there are some there are multiple standalone bills, including um, a bill introduced by South Carolina Senator uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, Majority Whip Dick Durbin, um, you, you know, the DREAM Act. Um, Professor Foster, in your view, would a better or smarter political strategy, being that, you know, Nate, Stephen, both alluded to the fact that the Democrats just don't have the numbers on their side uh, for the reconciliation process. Um, would it be wiser, in your view, to go along with the, uh, you know, the ways in which they were trying to Passed these standalone bills. Um, I remember, I think during the 2018 uh, session in Congress, um, you know, there were there were there was some optimism uh, with uh, House Speaker uh, or House Leader at the time Pelosi and uh, Minority Leader Schumer that they can actually get something done with Trump. What what say you, sir? You're on mute. I'm sorry. It was refreshing just to hear Stephen's take on this uh, from the Republican side. And of course, Nathaniel was all over it as well. But I've long been um, of the opinion that both the Democrats and the Republicans have left this issue unsolved because it works for both of them politically. But as Stephen pointed out, long term, it hurts the Republicans more um, because until they can come to grips, with um, the realities of uh, the demographic change in America, then they immigration will always be a negative for them. Um, the border issue really is a fake issue. Uh, 
Barack Obama had as strong uh, a record of deportation as any president in modern times. Uh, Donald Trump barely got to the same levels uh, of Obama. But the reality of the issue, the, the continuance of the issue provides fodder for those who still want to turn even further right uh, on immigration. It helps them in the primaries. It helps them um, turn out their vote. But we're getting to the point now, as you can see in um, Georgia um, and turning in Texas and North Carolina, where even a strong turnout won't work, won't work for Republicans on this issue as long as they are seen as being hostile to even legal immigration of people of of uh, of color of uh, Latino uh, descent, etc. The opportunity, as Stephen pointed out, to cultivate them as voters is there, but the the. Latent hostility towards them as people is what keeps a lot of Latinos going in the Democratic column. So I think President Biden should go as far as he can in proposing uh, a reasonable bill, um, starting with the DREAM Act, um, but also giving a path to citizenship for um, others in, in related categories um, to give, frankly, to give the Republicans the opportunity to, to refuse it. Um, I mean, that's just the politics of it. In terms of policy, um, going piecemeal is probably the way to get something done, but I'm still not convinced that either side really wants to get something done. Mr. McFadden, um, in your view, you know, do you see a, a, a Hail Mary pass, so to say, to, you know, fit in with, you know, the sports lingo um, as the, the key freight, the key uh, avenue for the Democratic Party to go forward with this program? Well, uh, first of all, thanks, Mike, for having me. Um, I didn't hear everyone's introduction, but it's really cool to have a couple uh, Palo Alto Stanford people. I live about 15 minutes from uh, the Stanford um, campus, so that's cool. Um, but I want to say that a Professor Foster hit the nail on the head. So back in 2012, uh, when Romney lost to Obama, the Republican Party wrote this manifesto where they basically – uh, call it a come to Jesus moment. Like we need to reach out to minorities. We need to expand the Republican coalition. If we ever want to hope to win a general election again, well, we all know from 2016 that that's not the path they ended up taking. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons you see Mitch McConnell coming out so strongly against Trump, even though he voted against the, the impeachment is because he realizes, you know, Trump just lost by four and a half points nationally. He lost by over 8 million votes. So you can say, Whatever he did, sure, it worked for the base, but it did not work to grow the coalition of the GOP. It's not going to help them politically going forward. Something like immigration, where they can actually get on board. You talk about, I think Stephen mentioned, where uh, Biden came on talking about bipartisan uh, efforts. This is the opportunity actually to do both, to get something passed that will please Democrats. Immigration reform has been long overdue, but also speak to McConnell, speak to these Republicans who realize that the last four years did not help them grow their coalition. This could be an opportunity to step forward for the Republican Party to, to say, hey, we're for immigration. We realize that America is becoming more diverse. Let's find a way to get a bill passed that makes both sides happy, 
and that in 2024, when that comes around, you can say, hey, Latinos, hey, African-Americans, we helped pass this. Don't just look on the left. Check out our party, too. So I, I think that the Hail Mary is more that they need to stop doing what they have done for the past 12 to 16 years and, and actually work for immigration reform for political purposes, for political strategy purposes. So, you know, this program, since I think the... Uh, the is it okay um, for like response to maybe some of the points that have been made? Go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, 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 just briefly. I, I agree like with, I think, some of the points which uh, you know, Professor Foster and uh, Brian have brought up because in a sense, right, it's a conservatism, you know, the Republican Party is uh, should be for everyone, right? It's a universal principles or something, I think. Uh, coming from a Hispanic background, I think people can agree upon on the issues. It's, uh, I, I, I think, though, that it's... Uh, the, the immigration point is still a strong political point uh, to make. And I think it's, a, I'm not too sure if the GOP is doing anything wrong, really, in terms of their outreach to uh, a lot of Hispanic Americans. It's, uh, I think it's, uh, when you look at uh, polling uh, in Texas, right, for example, for the election of Greg Abbott, right, you had a 40% turnout on, on that front. And you had the highest Hispanic turnout, at least for the, the, uh, a sitting Republican president since uh, since uh, since uh, Richard Nixon. So I, I do think that, uh, believe it or not, there is a strong uh, legal immigration does have a strong appeal to a lot of uh, second and third generation uh, his Hispanics, and that's that's in addition to a lot of the social issues which I think the GOP could do better on. I, I think it's in fact. The fact that the GOP has been too weak on some some of the issues that have generally been uh, traditionally associated with the Republican Party, like fam like you know family and the the, the pro life issue. It's uh, I've grown up in the Hispanic community most of uh, my life, and this the citizenship question poses a real emotional quandary, at least for me, because this these uh this relates to people that I know and you know who helped uh, raise me. But then it's again, it's I think that. There needs to be a nuanced solution to that problem because I think our nation has an obligation to in enforce its laws, and it's unfair to a lot of you know a lot of Asian Americans and you know have a very strong resentment against uh, you know our country's government because we we don't enforce our immigration laws properly or fairly. It's uh, you know because a lot of people you know have personal uh, attachments, but. Yeah, but no, just to wrap wrap it up. I, I think the the GOP is I think on on the right track fundamentally on these issues and uh, their outreach. And I think that immigration, a strong immigration policy, is still perfectly within their purview for its a successful run in uh, uh, twenty two and uh, twenty four. Um, Ethan, you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, Stephen brought up a lot of great points that I was actually just going to say, but at, at least in our organization, I don't think you'll find a Republican that, that's not willing to say that the diversity um, is inherently what makes America America, right? And we want to keep that that same that same principle uh, at helm always, right? Um, and we, ha we have to recognize that it was only uh, a couple decades ago, right, where, where this issue of immigration is one that every American could get behind, regardless of what side of the aisle you were on. And we have to remember that uh, simply because, you know, we're, we're, we're more likely, uh, and as, as Nate kind of brought up, we're more likely to figure something out that solves um, 
that concerns of both sides when we sit together and when a president like President Biden uh, follows up on what he said, even if um, you know an individual didn't vote for Biden, he should still be willing to listen to them and take their consideration into any bill uh, that, that that's put forward. Um, and uh, Stephen brought up a great point again about this turnout that we saw in, in the 2020 election, right? Like, so this goes to show that there are uh, people of color, especially Latinos, who are recognizing the strength in, in Trump's policies. And I think that's just something that really needs to be taken into consideration when we start to make these broad statements about, you know, the failure uh, of the past four years. I just wanna, sorry, Mike, point out real quick that a lot of those gains in, in Hispanic votes were in certain sections, uh, specifically South Florida, some parts of Texas, Arizona, which has had a, a large growth in Hispanic population in particular, ended up going to, to President Biden. So yes, there are certain, and, and we say Hispanic, and some people group all Hispanics together, and that's a mistake. Um, you know, people who don't know better, every single one of those South American countries often have different political views based on the government that's in that country, based on the upbringing they had, um, based on family experiences they've had immigrating to the U.S., um, so, yeah, it's not good to group all of them together, but I will say specifically that some of the gains they had were in specific areas as opposed to a broad gain of Hispanic support across the country and the general. It's also important to remember that while we might view Latino as a racial category here, it's not necessarily viewed that way in the rest of Latin America. So, like, going following off your point, Brian, when we say that Trump gained among Hispanic voters, voters in, in, in Florida who are mostly Cuban and Venezuelan uh, don't vote the way their counterparts in New York, who are mostly Puerto Rican and Dominican, vote. And they don't vote like their counterparts in Chicago, who don't vote like their counterparts in you know, New Mexico and Arizona, and so on and so forth. So, and that uh, fall, also falls along racial lines. So when we see that there's this uh, groundswell of Hispanic support uh, trending toward the right side of the aisle, these are Hispanics who are generally white or lighter skin came from more affluent backgrounds in their home countries of origin as opposed to their more left-leaning uh, cousins and neighbors who are generally poorer and darker skin uh, from, you know, from these same countries. Um, it's also important to recognize that uh, the Democratic Party has been warned for years from activists within the party that they have, uh, that if they don't make serious changes to how they view this, you know, swath of the electorate, then they're going to see serious losses down the line. And we saw that. In, uh, so we've already started to see that. We saw Biden didn't really take that seriously in the general. There weren't really, uh, of all the uh, speakers of the Democratic National Convention, I think only one keynote speaker was of any sort of Hispanic background, Governor Luhan Grisham of, of New Mexico. Um, and we saw that in Florida, where Biden lost uh, only one Miami-Dade County by about 10 points, which is horrible, horrible, horrible performance if you're a Democrat. You know, uh, as soon as I saw those numbers, Mike, you remember I texted and I said, we've lost Florida. And um, so when we, so if we, the best way to solve this issue is to look at the whole picture instead of just kind of the easy kind of cop out and say, okay, Latino voters want this. It's, what do what does each specific you know what does each specific community want from immigration reform? How do we make sure that uh, refugees from El, from El Salvador who came here in the eighties and nineties uh, as part of the civil war aren't being left behind? How do we make sure that uh, people from Venezuela aren't being left behind? How do we make sure that people from Colombia aren't being left behind? You know, and uh, work from there. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll kick it over to, to Mike, but just, I think, to respond, because I, I do think it's important. I, and I shouldn't say respond, right, because it's, uh, um, I, I think we're all touching on, you know, a lot of things about the issue that we can agree on, right, regarding uh, the nuance and stuff. But it's, I, I do think, though, that fundamentally it's, uh, you know, that there, Rise even Brian mentioned earlier that there's room, right, for the GOP to improve, and I think the GOP has done an excellent job. It's, uh, and, you know, reaching out, like, for example, Greg Abbott, right, that's a, you know, governor who secured a significant amount of Hispanic population. And again, his body of Hispanics he's drawing aren't necessarily Cuban in answer. So I think there's a lot of, you know, gains that GOP can continue to uh, make. And I would also uh, dissuade, per se, on, um, you know, there's a lot that race can tell us and we shouldn't, you know, disregard that. But it's uh, like, as Daniel said, right, there's a lot of nuance, and a lot of the nuance is ideological. It's based on values and principles and um, connections to family. And it's, we always have to be just mindful of the assumptions that we take to how we impose or view uh, political conflict. It's, uh, yeah, but I'll, I'll kick it over to Mike because I know we have a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so this past Tuesday, um, during a CNN town hall, President Biden um, said that he would not eliminate $50,000 uh, in student debt. This is shooting down a proposal that prominent Democrats have been pushing um, for. And uh, President Biden said that he's open to a, some level uh, of debt forgiveness. He said, my point is I understand the impact of debt and it can be debil uh, debilitating, uh, but he said he's not, he, he, he's prepared to write off $10,000, uh, but he does not believe he has the authority uh, to write off $50,000. Um, you know, when, I've heard, I saw a lot of my friends posting and, you know, saying things uh, from both sides of the aisle, uh, from those who are Democrats, they were saying, you know, this is why the Democratic Party, some of them, uh, t takes advantage of us. And I've heard, you know, some criticisms um, on that side, particularly, but, you know, in my, in my view, and, you know, this is just me, I don't think the majority of people really voted for Biden for, for him to erase $50,000 of student loan debt. Um, I think that they voted for him uh, for his moderate position, for his ability to win over, uh, you know, states like Georgia uh, or, or swing states like in the in the Rust Belt, um, because there was such a fear. There was such an emergency. The the number one thing that, you know, poll after poll showed that Democrats in the primary were interested in was who can beat Trump. Um, and I think that was the thing that really drove the decision. It wasn't necessarily a policy based decision as much as it was a desire to to win the election. Um, Professor Foster, what say you? You know, what what what's your response to those criticisms? Um, is the Democratic Party, uh, you know, is this an is this an example of the Democratic Party taking advantage of pe young people, in particular young people of color, um, or do you think you know this is an issue that people have to understand? You know, when we're talking about student loan debt. That's a huge, huge, uh, you know, move, and we we with the numbers we have in both the houses of you know Congress, we can't really expect to see sweeping change like we would like. You're on mute again, sorry. I think President Biden was making just the, the classic political negotiations move. Um, he knows that there is a growing um, uh, base on the left uh, that has to be uh, addressed and respected. I think uh, the way that President Biden handled, if you wanna use that word, Bernie Sanders and the Bernie Sanders wing, uh, both during the post 
nomination period and during the campaign period was brilliant. I think what he was doing was saying, I won't take 50, uh, 10 may be my position. He may end up at 15 or 20. Um, and that will tip his hat to that wing. Uh, it's also, at least in the short term, rather good policy because people who are coming out of college, um, beginning their careers, can now redirect that money into consumption, uh, consumption that helps them uh, buy houses or buy furniture or do other things or even go to graduate school. Um, it frees up that capital um, because they are no longer, at least on the hook for part of that debt uh, because that debt is uh, kind of dead weight on the economy uh, until it's paid off. So I think uh, the president is um, drawing the, the, the boundaries around his centrist position by taking that position on uh, school debt forgiveness. Ethan, you want to respond to that? Sure. Um, regarding President Biden's uh, words, you know, I'm like like uh, Professor Foster said, you know, I'm not surprised that this is a route he decided to take. Now, whether what actually ends up getting done, you know, that, that's a different story. Um, you know, President Biden noted, you know, he didn't think he had the the ability to erase away fifty thousand. So, you know, I I, I draw the argument. What says? Uh, he has argument or he has the ability to, to do 10,000. Right. But no, um, you know, it's, it's an issue that needs reform. Right. And I, I think by simply erasing debt now, it's just going to kind of kick, kick the can down the road, so to say. Um, I think we need some sort of reform, but again, just saying we're going to erase that now. Okay. But this issue is going to continue to expand and grow. Right. So we need to find a, an issue to stop it before it gets any worse. And we have to, we have to come back to the table another 15, 20 years and, and come up with something, something very similar. Um, and it's going to draw this kind of same sort of debate. So, you know, it's, it, it, you know, I, I really like this conversation because it's interesting to see, you know, how many people, um, you know, placed a lot of stock in the fact that there was going to be debt. Um, and I think, you know, the anticipation didn't really, it wasn't really paired with a number. Um, not that I remember during the campaign, you know, that was, you know, you didn't really have campaign signs that said, you know, $50,000 debt rate was going to be erased. Um, but now all of a sudden we're seeing that the expectation of what would be in a new, in a new democratic administration uh, seems to be running up against some disappointment. Uh, Nate, how do you, you know, characterize all of this? Well, first off, I think it's important to remember that Biden never actually pledged to take off $50,000 of debt. Uh, once he was, uh, once the election was called in his favor, his uh, baseline was always $10,000. That was always where he was going to stick around. The $50,000 was a campaign proposal from Senator Boren and something that she got Schumer to sign on to. So I think it's important that we kind of draw that distinction. But it's also important to remember that, uh, you know, this is, Student, uh, student loans is also a bipartisan issue, and there's a lot of things that can be done, like uh, reducing, lowering interest rates, reining in uh, the, the kind of race to the top when it comes to tuition dollars that universities are engaging in. But you know, we also have to remember that ten thousand dollars is not going to get is not going to help out a lot of people. The argument that uh, 
Senator's point and Shimar making is that the Secretary of Education has the statutory authority to erase debt, you know, at will. It's something that previous secretaries of education have done on both sides of the aisle, you know, executive debt forgiveness. And um, but the thing is with with uh, Biden, his his uh, his uh, view and state of policy has always been get a bill. If you want fifty thousand dollars in debt removed, get a bill authorizing me to remove fifty thousand dollars in debt uh, in debt on my desk and I'll sign it. Uh, but we know with the realities of what Capitol Hill looks like, uh, how the Senate is the, the Senate is effectively a 60 vote institution, that that is highly unlikely to happen. So when you have people saying, wait, you have the executive authority to do this because the executive branch has this power, it's also important to remember that voters don't really care about the procedural thing, they care about how you can help them out, you know? Uh, so voters don't really care that the Senate takes 60 votes to, to advance a bill to a floor vote. They, they say, well, President Biden promised he'd have my back. You know, I'm drowning in debt. Uh, I, you know, I was told that if I got this degree and made a bunch of money, uh, if I got this degree, that, that the debt I, got, uh, I acquired from it would be good debt and that I would be able to make enough money to get it back. But 40% of students... Uh, of student debt holders didn't finish their education because their financial burden was too high. So they don't have a degree, they're still in debt, their debt is collecting interest, and they don't have the higher earning potential of the degree to grant them. So instant relief in some way, shape, or form would be great. I'm thrilled, for example, that Biden is extending the 0% interest on student loans, but that's not going to be enough. We also have to do something to actually help people get, get out from under that burden because once people don't have to worry about giving away Half, coughing up half of their salary uh, in, in interest, then we can. Then more and more people can do things like buy houses, buy cars, just buy regular things. Our economy is predicated on the flow of money. So the more money that's flowing around, the better everyone else, the better everyone else is. Um, and it's also important that the voters would rather someone be loud and wrong than uh, right and quiet. So you know, if you if we do these big things, especially for Biden, who is the leader of a party that, has, that is governing over very narrow majorities, is staring, at a is staring at a redistricting year that is not that is probably not going to favor his party, and is, and is a veteran of an administration that uh, two years in lost, their major lost the, the big majorities that they enjoyed and was not able to do most of the things that they wanted to do because they didn't have the numbers. If Biden is one or two big steps away from being from ensuring that next year is the rare midterm where the president's party gains seats instead of instead of uh, seeing a, a 2010 or a 2014 midterm, you know. You know, those are valid points. And 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 you know, I was thinking as you're speaking, you know, a lot, young people are not really excited with the idea of incremental change, <laughs> getting from point A to point C by way of point B, and gradually getting there. Um, and I think that's why Bernie Sanders got a lot of support because, you know, this was like, we're going to, you know, bust the wall down with these big, bold solutions. But, but at the same time, President Biden did recently say, look, we're in a pandemic. Now is the time for bold action. Uh, so, you know, which senators are you looking at in terms of, you know, who's going to, you know, just, just looking at the $10,000 proposal, uh, who, who are the key players in the Senate right now? You know, you know, I'm talking about Manchin, um, West Virginia, Susan Collins, uh, Markowski, like in the moderate faction of, you know, the Senate, who do you think is going to make or break this deal? Anyone can jump in. 
Well, I mean, the easy answer is uh, anyone who is is either been known to be a moderate, like Collins, Murkowski, uh, somebody like Romney, whose uh, political standing doesn't really matter depending on how he votes, um, or some senators who are either not up for re-election for six years or uh, planning on retiring and, and not rerunning, like Ben Sass um, and Richard Burr. Uh, so, I mean, that's basically the same people who voted for the conviction, uh, essentially. I mean, they, throughout at least the next two years, those are the senators that you might be able to count on, not to get to 60, but at least to get uh, you know, mid fifties and make it a little bit easier to, to get to a, an actual vote. Um, one of the things that I want to mention on this particular issue, uh, specifically to what you said, Mike, about young people wanting uh, just have it all at once. Uh, one of the reasons I think Biden won the nomination and won the election is people know that, you know, for better or for worse, uh, Bernie's way is not practical. Right. Um, and, and Senator Warren's for, for, you know, in a fashion, a lot of her, uh, they're, they're great sounding and ideal, and, and uh, but they're not practical. So it's hard to get anything passed in Congress, let alone something that's a big sweeping change. So Biden knows that. I mean, it can be a knock that he's been in, in the government for 40 years, but it can also be a benefit because he has seen how these things actually work, what works, what doesn't work. So uh, agreeing to knock off 10,000, uh, I think, is a very smart political strategy. It's, it's easier for, for GOP senators to get on board with something like that for GOP House members to say, okay, 10, I can, I can get my constituency to understand a $10,000 cut as opposed to just wiping all of it out. Uh, because there are some financial repercussions. I think the system itself is broken. Obviously, I think we all agree here that the, the student loan situation is broken and needs a ton of reform. But just knocking $50,000 off from every single student who owes, what are the financial ramifications of that? Uh, and that will be hard for anybody. Some Democrats, Manchin in West Virginia, you said, that's hard for him to sell to get his constituency if there's financial ramifications of a move like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Professor Foster, go ahead. Um, yeah, I was just going to say quickly, I, I think Brian's definitely on the, on the right track. I think Joe Biden is basically checking off a checklist of promises and wants to deal with the student loan forgiveness in whatever way um, the Democrats can agree to it and get something done. Uh, I think that uh, the Democrats would be better off in reloading, if you will, Obamacare under the cloak of, of uh, uh, responding to COVID. Um, you could reload a lot of benefits that were either part of or intended to be part of the original Obamacare bill and get by, maybe get some bipartisan support under it, under the cloak of this is how we're going to get more um, uh, vaccines in the arms of people. This is how we're going to help people recover from uh, the financial uh, the adverse financial effects of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, th I think Biden is trying to as quickly check off his checklist so that he can go to things that have more substance and more bipartisan appeal. And Stephen, you're going to say something? Yeah. So, well, yeah, it's, I, I agree with Brian and Professor Foster that, you know, this is a sort of easy. Please call me Preston. Oh, yeah, Preston. Yeah, sure, sure thing. I, I will. Yeah, but yeah, this is a it's a quick, quick, easy uh, solution to a very difficult, you know, difficult uh, problem, right? It's uh, 
And it's obviously the question is who is going to bear the brunt of this? It's American taxpayers. So I, I do think though that there is a big political case to be made uh, to the American people that this is not the political, obviously it's may appeal to young people with debt. I mean, maybe me or Ethan can't you know, necessarily speak to it because we're you know, low income, you know, Quest, Quest, Quest Bridge guys. So it's, uh, but it's, I do think though, as for a long-term goal to this problem is to really uh, move away from the role that universities play in, uh, you know, you know, you know, as as a as a marker for someone's ability to be able to go to work in American society, because it's uh, what well, the skills that you're learning in the university just are not reflective of the schools that, unless you're doing engineering, of, but of of the tools that you'll need to go out and work in society and to load on $140,000 or more in, in debt for a degree in a gender studies, which I mean, it's sure it may have intellectual value per se, but it isn't something that's going to increase uh, capital. And it's uh, for the American people to sort of pay, bear the, the brunt of that is just for, as a long-term issue. I, I think it's, we need to, we need to figure out the role of the universities fundamentally in American life and in the workplace, because this is not not feasible for low-income Americans who uh, can't, you know, you know, fork out that that money to begin with to have to bother getting a four-year education for something they may not even need at all. But this is a cultural thing, you know, that we've sort of um, because we culturally believe that it's important that it's become that. So I think just culturally, it's uh, we do need to figure out how to move away from that because it's not feasible at all for a lot of Americans. You know, th this conversation is making me think of uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, because, you know, we've been, we've talked about how much experience Biden has in the Senate uh, 36 years. Uh, you, I think he was elected in 72, uh, sworn in in 73. Um, you know, I th thought about Lyndon Johnson because, you know, that was during a period where there were so many progressive uh, policies that were just being rammed through Congress. And, you know, whenever he was, you know, of course, the Johnson treatment. I think he was over six feet tall and towered over people. And, you know, this photos of him trying to persuade uh, legislators. And whenever his aides would come and said, you know, what about Senator Sonzo? You know, how do we get them? And he'd say, don't worry about them. I've got his, I've got his pecker in my pocket. And in other words, you know, I, I, I've got him covered, you know, and because he has these kinds of relationships in the Senate, uh, he's not as worried uh, of winning them over. Like he has confidence. He has a lot of faith in the fact that he can uh, meet them in the middle somehow, some way. Um, so that's going to be something interesting, but I want to keep the conversation moving uh, a little bit more. Uh, you know, Texas, it, Texas is on the hearts and minds of so many Americans right now. Um, <clears throat> just last yesterday, Wednesday morning, uh, some 2.7 million households were still without power. Uh, you know, governor Abbott, uh, the Texas governor said that he, ordered natural gas producers in Texas to stop selling fuel outside of the state and to instead sell it to the state's power generators in an attempt to help restore electricity to millions of residents uh, still without it. Uh, Abbott also said that uh, more power is being brought online to get people's electricity back. Um, and when asked which areas uh, should, should should be expected to have restored power or when that might happen, he responded, um, he doesn't know, uh, he quoted, I'm quoting him, he said, uh, that is information that has not been provided to me. Um, Beto O'Rourke has been someone who has uh, risen back on the airways in terms of uh, his criticisms of the Texas state government um, and their response to the severe winter weather that they're experiencing. Um, 
he said that, uh, you know, um, you know, from everything that he's learned uh, in traveling to the 254 counties of Texas, folks have gone days now without electricity. Um, and we're focused on uh, the stupid, uh, the, stu the stupid wars in terms of, you know, whether we should play the national anthem at the Maverick Games, um, or you know whether we should be a sanctuary state uh, for the NRA. Um, you know, what is your response to those criticisms and your response to the the state government's uh, actions thus far uh, with this ongoing crisis in that state? Um, I'm thinking back in the you know the Bush years, going back to 2005 with Bush's response to Katrina, and you know the political damage that you know the the uh, perception of him on the on Air Force One flying above the the wreckage um, had. And I you know I always thought if Katrina had happened in 2004, uh, we'd be looking at a different Bush Kerry election. What say you, panelists? Well, I think first we need to remember this is what happens when you run a government like a business. The government of the state of Texas uh, took the power, disconnected their power grid from the rest of the country in order to avoid federal regulation. So now you have these power companies. You have people like Jerry Jones who are thrilled about how much uh, natural gas they're going to be able to sell to people and how much money they're going to make from it uh, because there's no federal regulation over Texas's power grid. Power grids usually don't just cross state lines, they even cross international lines. You know, the state of uh, Nevada is on the uh, the power grid that the power grid region of Nevada reach extends extends all the way into Canada. This is what happens. Deregulation kills. We can't forget that the uh, government is supposed to provide the service to people, not you know run a profit. Uh, so this is really this is the uh, problem that Abbott and other Texas and other state house uh, GOP members in Texas have made, uh, and now the chickens are coming home to roost. It's also amazing to see that, that he has a flat out refused to take accountability for it. Instead, like, instead of saying, you know what, I messed up by insisting on doing on managing our energy this way, he blamed it on frozen wind, he blamed on windmills and frozen windmills and the Green New Deal, even though the Green New Deal is not law anywhere and windmills can survive anywhere. And the reason that Texas is falling apart is because it's so unusually unseasonably cold because it doesn't usually get that cold anywhere there it's snowing on the border uh, is because natural is natural gas is freezing in the pipelines and people aren't prepared uh, people, the state is not prepared for this kind of cold weather because there isn't that kind of infrastructure this kind of weather doesn't happen that far south you know every few years there'll be, there'll, there's going to be a little snow in a place like dallas for example which is a bit further north but this isn't the kind of statewide thing you know and because people have had their power shut off in their houses, they can't keep the, they can't keep the heat flowing in order to keep water in the pipes, in order to keep uh, gas flowing through through the through the pipes. And so we see people are stuck in their homes. They've got no heat. The, the their pipes are are breaking and bursting. This is a legitimate crisis, you know. Um, we. We have to, we, we can't get so, you know, kind of, this is a legitimate crisis. We can't get stuck in kind of uh, blame, uh, instantly uh, pointing the finger at the finger in the traditional way at the traditional boogeyman of AOC and, and, and Bernie Sanders. But it's also important to remember that people are legitimately being affected here. You know, uh, Texas is a big state, it's a very diverse state. It's not just Houston and Dallas and San Antonio, there's a, there's a lot of land in between. There's a lot of people in between that are being severely, severely affected. Like there are people freezing to death in their homes. And, and you know, and as people are powerless, we're seeing that uh, power is staying on in places that are wealthy. Power is staying on in 
the metro regions of, of major cities, but people who are sitting in their homes who pay their, their utilities are not able to get power, even though these empty buildings still have their lights on. You know what I'm saying? So we, uh, this, is, this is a failure of not just leadership or, or policy, but also a failure of imagination for failing to see that this was the, what was going to happen when, uh, when this kind of decision was made. And not just because uh, blizzards don't happen in Texas, but uh, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, uh, what if a different weather event had happened and the same kind of energy failure had happened? You know, we can't, government provides a service. Government does not exist to run a profit. It exists to do things for its servant. And we have uh, public servants in, in Texas saying, well, if you expected us to provide your heat, then you're just gonna have to deal with it, you know? We, uh, these people stood in line to vote for their for these leaders, and these leaders are failing them in the moment, and people are suffering because of it. So, Stephen, before I pivot to you, because I know you're bursting to respond, uh, but um, you know, some better work I think is eyeing a, a run for governor in 22. Um, he recently said, you know, look at Governor Abbott's state of the state speech, uh, in which he gave uh, within the last few weeks, he's, he listed five top priorities. In them are election fraud, uh, given the fact that we had the best, he said, you know, the, the, the most safest, most secure election, uh, quoting um, the individual who was overseeing um, the election, who was a Republican, the most secure election in American history. There really is no election fraud concerning Texas, uh, certainly not to be a, a top five priority. Um, you know, he mentioned the fact that Texas, um, you know, he, he said Texas could be a gun a sanctuary state. Um, you know, but nowhere in the five top priorities were, uh, you know, this ongoing uh, crisis in terms of the, the, the severe winter weather. Stephen, jump in. Yeah, well, I, I think as much as it is a question of, you know, the fact, right, that it was natural, nat natural, natural uh, disaster, right? Um, that it's, uh, that crises aren't, that the crises that appear aren't necessarily in a vacuum, right? It's a uh, is that some wise congressman once said, you know, you never let a good crisis go to waste. It's go to waste. It's a very feasible that um, if it weren't a President Bush who was flying over Katrina and a President Obama instead, you would have maybe never heard of the travesty which was occurring at Katrina at the time. So this is why it's very important that we understand the role that uh, media and narrative and politics plays in the role of uh using things that are crises that happen to people as a way to advance certain uh, political agendas, whether or not that's the, you know, this this Green New Deal, right? And the frozen windmills or uh, uh, natural gas is uh, freezing in the pipes, right? You know, it's, but it's, uh, I, I do think though that there is a, you know, it's, there is a nuanced discussion to have be had about what the proper uh, re response could be. We just have to be, you know, However, separate that from this uh, the public policy question, which everyone wants to bring in. Why everyone wants to use the crisis to further their um, own uh, political narrative. If it isn't uh, Katrina, if it isn't uh, uh, Texas, for example, it's. Uh, it used to be. It wasn't just uh, people were having this conversation uh, when it was Hurricane. Uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the hurricane two two years ago. It's uh, it's oh look at these you know back backward Texas. They, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah. Look at these backward Texans. They're uh, 
taking, you know, is they're all about this gun ho, uh, Yelp states, Yelp states rights. And then now they have to depend on the, the federal government. Honestly, it's, uh, it isn't a genuine conversation. It's very had, it's very cheap and it's very, uh, political really. Um, but yeah, but yeah, no, that's, that's, that's why that's, you know, the role of a crisis in advancing a narrative is very important, at least to what's going on here. But we also have to deal with the fact that at some point on some issues, public policy really does matter. What what you do and say about the coronavirus matters. What your regulations around uh, gas pipes and, and um, infrastructure matter. Um, these things have, yes, they have, uh, an effect on the political agenda of, of both sides, but at some point, the and 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 I'm talking about Governor Cuomo in New York as well, but 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 the actual policies matter. They are affecting people. People are dying because of public policy, because of bad public policy. Uh, in Texas uh, right now. You have a governor, as Nathaniel said, avoiding responsibility and shifting responsibility and pushing a false narrative to avoid talking about the actual policies that that um, could not respond to this natu uh, natural disaster. There are regulations that were put in place that would have mitigated this, but because the public policies in Texas lean towards less regulation, this is the effect of it. Um, there are states surrounding Texas that, that have, uh, that are experiencing similar weather that don't have the similar public policy uh, challenges that Texas has. So um, our, our political leaders, you know, I understand politics and I appreciate politics, but at some point, policies matter. Yeah, so, and I, I just real quick, it's a, I, I agree a hundred percent. I think that uh, po policies matter, and I think that the point you made, even about uh, like Governor Cuomo's policy, is another you know example. Of this I, I think I, I can remember when er, earlier in March when this was uh, brought up. And this was people were decrying uh, almost policy regarding the nursing homes, even as there was an open ship with empty beds just waiting to be used. Uh, but this wasn't, you know, no one, we're only talking about this now because uh, you, the election is over. Because um, at the time, uh, news media you know, stations thought that, you know, this story was a distraction uh, for political reasons we can't. Um, allow or give the president any issue which might potentially be used as a cultural. And I think it's, you know, the, the, the it's a tragedy, right, is that public policy question is the question that matters and is the conversation we have. But it's, un unfortunately, it's it's not the one uh, that we are having. It's, uh, it's always uh, very, very superficial. And that's something we have to You'll be knowledgeable of. And Cuomo, what's happening with Cuomo right now is a perfect example. But if we're talking about what caused this, you know, 
the fact that uh, Texas's energy supply is completely deregulated, uh, you know, how is that not having that policy discussion? You know, uh, if, uh, for example, Louisiana, you think Louisiana is not experiencing the same kind of demands on the uh, power of the Texas is, maybe not at the same level, but simply because Texas is a much larger, much more populated, much wealthier state, but on the same structural level, people who aren't used to this kind of winter weather uh, trying to do what they can to stay warm and stay alive. But, and then for the political leadership of the states to say, well, it's not my fault, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the Green New Deal, which is not law yet, it's uh, green energy, which only accounts for which accounts for around ten percent or less of Texas's energy, and then for you know the governor to say, well, I don't know when your lights are going to turn back on. For local mayors to say, well, it's not my responsibility to keep your lights on, and then for the senator of your state that you elected, who of course as the senator has an office of public engagement, to decide that this is the time to go on vacation to Cancun and sit on the beach. You know, this is a failure on many, many, many levels. Uh, you know, as as horribly as as Governor Cuomo has handled the coronavirus, and I am not, and uh, although I am a Democrat from New York, I am no great fan of Governor Cuomo. Uh, as horribly as he's handled this, you you wouldn't see. Uh, you know, when he was writing books about uh, leadership in in a crisis, everyone was like, "What are you doing?" Remember when people were dropping down left and right in your state? You know, so this is a failure of leadership, and it's a failure of uh, uh, people on people within those the circles of those leaders to hold them to account. I, I'd like to quickly, jump, you know, we're talking a lot about these policy failures, and I think a lot of people are quick to forget what happened in California back in two thousand two thousand one with the market uh, market manipulations and capped retail prices of. Uh, this really um, energy so uh, shortage in California, which led to millions of people being out of power. And we still see the, uh, blackouts today with uh, the fires. But what, what this really illustrates, right, is that you what's coming, what's what's tending to come back up is this idea of um, of I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank, a, a lack of rules and regulations, right? But what we see is, and even in states where there are uh, heavy rules and regulations, there are failures. And we saw this, in, like I said, in California, people are uh, quick to dodge responsibility. And I think what's happened in Texas here is really uh, goes to show a bigger issue of a, an infrastructure issue in, in Texas, right? So we're going to learn a lot from the situation. Um, and hopefully we'll prevent this from ever happening on the scale that, that it does ever again, right? But to simply say that one policy could have solved this all, right? Comparing it to other states. I think, again, that, that's uh, overgeneralization because as we see, more um, more rules and regulations does not always lead to um, greater results. I agree. Well, we, I, we I think that, that uh, sorry. Yeah, no worries. I just want to say that I think they, the bigger issue here, and I think we've hit on it a few times, uh, is the politicization of all this as opposed to you know, whether there's overregulation or not enough regulation, both could be true. We've seen them be true in multiple states, uh, but clearly the leadership failed. Leadership in New York failed. I lived there for 13 years. I, I think leadership in some degree has failed in California. Um, you know, I, I know we were going to talk about Newsom. I don't know if we're still going to talk about Newsom. Uh, and leadership is clearly failing in, in Texas. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat. If you're making this a political thing and blaming the other side, but at the same time your citizens are suffering, you're doing something wrong. I agree with Brian 100%. It's important to keep our leaders accountable.
leaders need to lead with. Also, when we're talking about comparisons, there's a literal side-to-side -side comparison. When we look at streets in Texarkana, uh, Texas, there's still snowed over. There, you know, the lights are off. We look at streets in in Texarkana, Arkansas, or Texarkana, Louisiana. Uh, the streets are maintained. People are able to maintain some some sort of semblance of of normalcy despite living in an area that's not used to this level of winter, of, of winter weather. You know, it, uh, for for, for some perspective, it's not in the Northeast today, but infrastructure-wise, I didn't have to worry about my personal safety because there are building codes about uh, being prepared for snow. There are state plans about these kind of snowstorms. So, you know, as you know, as I was doing my, my schoolwork today, you know, I heard the, the trucks coming around to clear the snow away. I didn't have to worry. But in a state like, uh, in southern states that don't get these kind of this kind of winter weather, the preparation consists of you know, reaching out to your, you know, uh, other neighboring states that might be more conditioned for this and say, hey, would you mind sending over some of your equipment because I can't handle this on my own. You know, doing what it takes to help your people as much as possible. Now, playing to narratives, politicians do have to do that. It's just the nature of the game. But if you're just going to play, play to the narrative and not, you know, do what you can to, to solve the problems that people are facing, that is, the, that is, uh, adding problems on top of problems to, uh, and, and not adding solutions. It's just adding gasoline to the fire. And very quickly, uh, the United States is on the, on the verge of becoming a, a second tier country because we can't deal with our real issues. Uh, the politics has taken over and I'm not naive, politics has always existed, but we, uh, I think, got a little comfortable about our position in the world that since we're number one, what we do doesn't matter in terms of our policies. But we're no longer, you know, number one. We we're now at the phase where we're finding metrics that reinforce that we're number one in certain areas. But we're losing ground to China. We're losing ground, you know, to to, to Asia in general. We're losing ground all over the world. Uh, and I'm talking about not just in terms of our military or economics, but our infrastructure. If you fly around the world, if you travel, and then you come back to the United States, it's like, geez. So gentlemen, I, I do wanna keep the conversation moving. Um, running out of time, so much to talk. This is such a rich conversation, but I, I have to get to uh, the acquittal that just took place uh, on pres for, for former President Donald Trump, this is the first president in U.S. history to have uh, two to have undergone two impeachments. Um, the Senate voted 57 to 43 uh, to acquit the president. This is 10, sh 10 shy of the 67 needed for him to have been convicted. Um, since that time, since last Saturday, uh, President Trump has issued out a statement. Now he is not on Twitter. Uh, he doesn't have the same access he had to his social media accounts, but he did release a statement. Um, and it was a very scathing statement about uh, Senate Majority, uh, Senate Minority Leader now, uh, Mitch McConnell, who did vote to acqu uh, acquit, but then took to the Senate floor uh, to denounce Trump and to say that he was still open to uh, criminal liability. Um, according to Mr. Trump, he said, in Mitch, Mitch's Senate, over the last two election cycles, I single-handedly saved the, the at least 12 Senate seats, more than eight in the 2020 cycle alone. And then came the Georgia disaster where we should have won both U.S. Senate seats, but McConnell matched the Democrat offer of $2,000 stimulus checks with $600 uh, 
My only regret is that Mitch begged for my strong support and endorsement before the great people of Kentucky in the 2020 election, and I gave it to him. He went on from point to, down to 20 points up and won. Um, this is significant. You know, you, I've heard senators say, you know, you really don't want to Mitch, mess with Mitch McConnell. Uh, Mitch McConnell is the most calculating uh, politician on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, when you look at how he was able to get three Supreme Court justices uh, within one pr presidential term, uh, remember Scalia died February, a whole year uh, essentially went by and Mitch McConnell refused to allow Merrick Garland to have a hearing. And then that paved the way for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, Mitch McConnell, he's, he's proven himself to be someone who thinks about not just the next election cycle, but the next generation in a lot of respects. Um, so I'm, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, this vote to acquit uh, the former president. Um, in addition to the fact that a lot of senators are facing censorship, uh, Senator Richard Burr, my former home state of North Carolina is just the recent one um, that where the North Carolina Republican Party unanimously decided to censor him. Um, you have other senators, Pat Toomey, you have, um, you know, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, who, who've experienced the same thing. Um, you know, and then you have Representative Adam Kingsinger of Illinois, who I've always thought had presidential as, uh, aspirations. Um, you know, his family wrote him a letter and the letter said, oh, my, what a disappointment you are to us and to God. Uh, it is now and most most embarrassing to us that we are related to you. Um, you know, if that doesn't hurt you, I don't know which will. You know, that's your family. I want to get your thoughts, panelists, on you know whether which direction do you think the party should go? Uh, do you think that Trump crossing Mitch McConnell is a mistake the, on Trump's part? Um, you know, what say you? Oh, and also the censorships. Well, at least I, I could say something, and um, I, I think fundamentally, it's uh, I think it's the prerogative of the GOP to ideologically steer the direction. They want the movement to go, and it's. Uh, I, I think it's uh, these these censorings are uh, perfectly justified in the sense that the GOP went and people voted for these senators, and they did not reflect the, the values of the GOP. And so it's totally within there's for these senators to be censured is perfectly within that. Um, and regarding McConnell, it's. Uh, I think we, we do have a lot, a tremendous amount of appreciation for how he's handled the issues with uh, the, the courts, but a lot of Republicans feel that the way he, you know, the way he's, his, his speech on the floor wasn't a principled stance. It was political political hackery, right, to sort of appease this, this splinter that you sort of see appearing in the GOP right now and to save his behind. And if you're someone like maybe us, well, I guess like me and Ethan, it's a we don't have any intention to go into politics at all. It's uh, electrical engineers, you know, economists, just but who care about the principles and the direction of the GOP. I think it's uh, Mitch McConnell right now is an obstacle to that, and it's uh, the GOP is more fractured now, I think, than it ever has been in recent memory. And I think there's a debate now among conservatives about the direction. Right? Is it do we want to um, fight to preserve this this populist wing of the a reigniting of the conservative movement, which you found, or do we want to take it back to uh, a place of norm, norm normality, whatever that might might mean, right? And I I, I could talk about the why I thought that the ruling was perfectly justified and a given um, 
with the charges against him, but I'll I, I've talked a lot, so I'll I'll, I'll pump it. To... I, I'd love to ask Stephen a question, actually, if that's okay. Um, I'm curious why you think that McConnell is on the wrong side of this. You mentioned there's a rift in the GOP, clearly, uh, but why is it McConnell's stance against Trump that is that is that GOP people are questioning? And and here's why I'm asking that. And this is you know I'm somebody who who uh, are interested in politics in general. Um, and so Trump, the populism that you cited for four years cost them the, the White House, them being the Republicans, cost them the House of Representatives and cost them the Senate. Even if it got extra turnout, it so motivated the other side and independents as well to go out and get rid of Trump and completely cost them all three uh, you know, branches. So why do you think that McConnell's and yes, it's a political, 100% a political move. But why do you think that's the wrong move, as opposed to McConnell saying, "Okay, Trump's populism clearly didn't work. Short term, yes. Long term for the GOP, it didn't work. Let me not not impeach him, but let me go ahead and try to get out in front of this and steer the GOP in a different direction that maybe will allow the coalition to grow and maybe bring in more people who have GOP values, you know, fiscal conservatism." Uh, social conservatism, sure, but didn't really like Trump and his populist policies. Uh, I'm curious why you think that was the wrong move by McConnell. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's about, and first off, it's, I, I think there's, on a political standpoint, I think there's uh, populism at least has, there's another debate within the conservative movement right now, which is, you know, this uh, this Reaganite traditional conservative where we, you know, limited government, right, Where and you have this, you know, populist movement, which a lot of times it's uh, kind of like horseshoe theory. It's you, you want, you're, it's, you're bringing in a lot of concerning, ra- I, I, and we think racist ideas about well, the white working class and using the state right to appeal to identitarian means. We at least think that that's, that's really no different than the sort of identity politics that the far left likes to play. And that's why we're concerned. But the issue more broadly, at least with McConnell, isn't uh, the, the policy uh, the, the policy on uh, the merits. I think in 2020, the, the, the election you saw was very close and it wasn't per se because of the policies in themselves. It was uh, the virus, but most importantly, it's just the president is just his own worst enemy. I think it's, uh, it's uh, he's just, everyone's known this about his, character right and it's i think it just people turned out out of their contempt and hate for the president himself than it was for enthusiasm for biden himself or even just the 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 policy it's uh and that's fundamentally what and and i think uh for the recall it's i we think and we contributed to a lot of the you know the president's you know legal legal challenges we participated in a lot of these uh, stopped the steel efforts and there was a legal process, right? And we accepted a conclusion and we think that maybe it was wrong for the president to have uh, prolonged that. But it's uh, re- regarding M- McConnell, though, it's uh, it's just uh, the yeah, just, just the, the fact that you, you, you'll you just affirm affirming a wrong uh, ruling, which undercuts the president and the the people who um, voted for him, it might have just been better for him to just have voted to uh, convict with all the others rather than take a very cowardly uh, position. I, I, I couldn't disagree more. What McConnell did 
in terms of not voting to convict him was political. His speech was right on the facts. His speech had nothing to do with the constitutionality of the uh, impeachment trial. It had to do with what Donald Trump did to incite the insurrection against the Capitol and, and the false narrative that he promoted about the election being stolen. And to me, it, it's still unbelievable that people can protect Donald Trump after people pissed in the, in the hallways of the Capitol at his bidding. So I, I just don't understand how McConnell's speech was the wrong way to go. I could see how his vote could be posed as political, but what he said was factually true. So can I just want to jump in with some numbers real quick. Uh, Forbes uh, recently released a poll, um, and this showed how much uh, support there, that Trump has in the Republican Party still. 51% uh, of respondents believe the U.S. Senate uh, should have convicted Trump in his impeachment trial, and 55% uh, don't want him uh, to hold off office again. But at the same time, only 9% of Republicans think Trump should have been convicted in the Republican Party. I'm sorry, the, the, the numbers were overall, the electorate overall. In the Republican Party, though, 9% say Trump should have been convicted. 87% want him to run again. Um, Professor Foster, if you can jump back on and, and, and you know, respond to those numbers, knowing that, you know, Mitch McConnell is a very calculating political creature um, and that he spent four years. Remember, he spent four years trying not to cross Trump in any way. Um, and they've had opportunities to, you know, remember Charlottesville, remember, you know, there so many different things. And Mitch McConnell looked like he was rubbing his hands ready to uh, convict and be done with Trump. Uh, um, and I thought that he was doing it because the Democrats hold the majority now and maybe they'll get the blame. Um, what is your response to these numbers in terms of, you know, this potentially being the reason why McConnell did what he did? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by the numbers um, because to me, from my point of view, relative to what happened at the Capitol, a terrorist attack on the Capitol of the United States the fact that that many people would want him to run again and would support him again, regardless of, of policies, because you can get those same policies from any number of Republicans. But what Donald Trump is for them is a cult of personality that will draw out votes that from people who normally would not vote. Um, I, to me, he seems to be a tribal leader because uh, he's, he's contradicted, you know, so many of these so-called beliefs. I mean, prior to COVID, the deficit was exploding. Prior to COVID, the deficit was, so all this is limited government, all of this stuff, it's, it's not limited government, it's paying for the government that you, you buy. So I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I really, as a political scientist, I try to understand it. But in terms of, of rationality, given if, you, if the insurrectionists had been any other set of people, they would have been shot on sight. Okay, 
They would just have been shot on sight. And we can't even bring ourselves to vote against someone who, who's, who's out of office to say that what he did to incite that was wrong. It's also important to remember that impeachment is an inherently political process. It's so political that courts won't touch it. If you think your impeachment was done wrong, then that's something you just have to carry with you to your grave because the courts will not look at will not look at uh, questions regarding impeachment because that strictly belongs to the Senate. So the Senate decided whether or not it was constitutional to try uh, a former president, which is, which speaks to what Mitch, to Mitch McConnell's actions during this trial. He threaded a needle very carefully first. He indicated that he was uh, absolutely for impeachment, for freeing, for freeing the Republican Party from Trump. Then he, then once Trump was impeached, he purposely uh, delayed the trial until after he was out of office, so that he could raise the question of is it uh, uh, constitutional to try a uh, to hold a trial on a federal officer once they've let once they're no longer a federal officer. Voted against, voted against holding the trial, voted against witnesses, uh, but the whole time was saying, well, this is a vote of conscience. I'm not going to be whipping people's votes. He encouraged everyone to, to you know, come in with an open mind, uh, publicly stated constantly that Trump was responsible, but then said, well, uh, I'm not going to vote to convict because I don't think this trial is legitimate, which is the issue that he purposely crafted for himself so that he and the Republicans that were a little on the fence uh, to uneasy about voting to convict could have something to fall back on, even though that was already a settled issue, that because the Senate decided that the, the trial was legal, that the trial was in fact legal. So whatever, uh, now I am genuinely surprised at a few of the Republicans, you know, uh, Murkowski is, uh, is someone who, served, who lost the Republican primary and then was reelected anyway as a writing candidate. She's not worried about holding on to her seat in 2022, for example. Susan Collins was just reelected to a six-year term, and she's probably retiring at the end of that term anyway. I'm genuinely surprised about Burr, who is the kind of uh, a senator that, 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 that managers were targeting, someone who is uh, from a swing state, someone who is uh, retiring at the, end of the, at the end of the term next year. Um, and I'm surprised about Cassidy who did say that he was going to come in with an open mind, but this is someone who actually initially voted against holding the trial. Now, uh, Cassidy and, and the senators that voted, the Republicans that voted to convict might, uh, you know, justify their actions as we are trying to save our party from itself. So they might not care too much about the censure from their, from their state party, especially because it's just, it's effectively just, uh, when you censure someone, you're effectively just sending them a mean text. You know, it doesn't really hold any weight. It doesn't say, "Well, we're we're stripping you of this of our party label." They're not uh, banning them from running ever again. They're just saying, "We don't like what you did." So, you know, here's here's this mean letter. Um, but for you know, it, it just really speaks to Trump's grasp on the party as a whole his ability to bring people out to vote. You know, the big thing for a lot of Republicans is I don't want to cross Trump because I don't want Trump to endorse my opponent, who is then going to be the reason that I can't stay in the Senate. Although there's not, Trump doesn't really have a great record of picking winners. Uh, Mitch McConnell was always going to be reelected to the Senate. Kentucky does it, Kentucky is a red state that elects Democrats to statewide office, but not during election, not during presidential election years. Kentucky is, a, is one of those states that has a, 
flawed number in years of year elections. So it's a bit easier for, for uh, candidates to stand on their own as this is what I support as opposed to that uh, party affiliation. Let me talk about state and local politics. But you know, uh, it speaks to the whole because this is someone who sent, uh, this is someone who sent his people after them. He, he, uh, accused, he, this is, he accused Kelly Leffler while she was still in the Senate of colluding with Brian Kemp to keep Doug Collins off the ballot. This is someone who accused, uh, this is someone who put a pr massive pressure campaign on his loyal, loyal, loyal vice president to, uh, overturn the, to try to overturn the results of a free and fair election. Uh, this is this is someone who, once he realized that wasn't going to happen, sent a mob into the place where the government of the United States does its business uh, in order to delay and uh, and overturn, delay and stop essentially the certification of this election. These are people that came in screaming, "Hang Mike Pence!" Uh, in, during a time period where it wasn't just the vice president and the speaker of the house number one and two in the uh, presidential line of succession, it was the vice president-elect that was there. This was, um, this was an attempt to literally halt the government and, and, and stay in power. And for, uh, and not just in that, and not just, and that's not just a frightening thought, it's also Trump was advocating for federal power to overturn the way states administer their own elections, which is the most anti-conservative thing I've ever heard. And so, you know, we can't say that these Republicans were not following true conservative principles. What they, uh, by voting to convict and saying, it's not acceptable that you tried to overturn uh, uh, state elections because in this country, the president is not elected by the people, the president is elected by states. It's not, it wasn't just that you did that, it's that you set people against our capital, which is the first time the, uh, the Capitol had been breached ever. The first time the, the flag of the Confederacy had ever flown the Capitol. These are people that tore down the flag off the top of the Capitol so they could leave the Trump flag, you know? And for the party to not even be able to come together and say, you know what, that was wrong. They, not, they fumbled uh, effectively a moment for a true unity for everyone to come together and say, you know what, that was not okay and we should never do that again. Uh, now the party has to make a decision. And they have to make it quickly because they can't have it both ways. Are we going to be the, that party, that alleged, that party of of of, of uh, Ted Cruz and and uh, Cindy Hyde Smith and Josh Hawley and go this way and just continue to counterpunch and mudsling and you know cry fraud every time we lose, or are we going to be the party uh, that's more traditional, the party of uh, Mitt Romney and and Susan Collins and and Liz Cheney? And dial it back and focus on the bread and butter things that that uh, that got us in the White House. Because the Republican Party does have a serious issue because they have because they have won the popular vote once in the twenty first century. You know, so are we going? So as a party, uh, this was the time to say how do we uh, how do we identify the issues that led to that? How do we acknowledge that we have this problem? And how do we you know cut around effectively? The, the 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 rot that that allowed this to happen but for but you know this is what happens uh trump has become so effective at getting republicans so they don't want to lose that 
you know, Trump is the very rare presidential candidate to gain votes the second time around. Uh, the, the previous record for uh, votes in a presidential election was Obama in 2008. Even though he was reelected in 2012, he lost votes. Uh, and we do talk about the fact that Joe Biden won 81 million votes, which is an unprecedented number. Trump won 74. Trump gained votes the second time around, even though he lost the popular vote by a much wider margin. That doesn't happen in American politics ever, even when turnout increases election to election. So, you know, it's about, so when you have these, uh, you know, Yale and Harvard law, law graduates trying to pretend to be all folksy and uh, trying to tap into a current that they don't truly understand, this is what happens. You, you now have, uh, you, 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 this is a tiger that they tried to hold by the tail, but now they, they're realizing you can't hold on to the tiger's tail forever because eventually the tiger is going to turn around. And on January 6th, that tiger turned around. And it, would have been, and it could have been much worse if a few things had gone slightly differently. If Eugene Goodman doesn't uh, antagonize those people on the stairs to lead them away from the Senate, if, you know, if Chuck Schumer's protective detail doesn't uh, uh, pull him away at the last second, like this was, this came very close to being a tragic event. Like we're talking about Ayanna Presley going back to her office and discovering that all of her panic button, buttons were taken out. And for like this, uh, this was not just uh, something that happened in a vacuum. And, you know, it was something that required, uh, this, this was a request by the president to violate the principles that he claimed to stand for, violate the principles of law and order, uh, of, rule of, of rule of law, of uh, limited government, small government, home rule, all of that. And then for, and then when people try to restore that, uh, they're the ones who are now being told they're in the wrong and, and not the ones who are trying, who try to uphold what just happened. You know, I know, like, it was embarrassing to be an American on January 6th. We had the poster children for authoritarianism around the world going, well, we are, our hearts are with the United States at this moment because this is a scary, scary thing. You, you know, like, when, when, uh, and when we don't speak up and say, universally and say, this is wrong, uh, you know, we, we open the door for something worse to happen in the future. So, Nate, Nate, or Ethan, you're going to respond, but real quick. I, I you, did want to. Yes, yes, sir. But real quick, if you could um, respond to that, but also, um, you know, the question of, you know, that's been thrown around, you know, if you're going to censor these Republican senators for voting for impeachment, why didn't you censor Marjorie Taylor Greene? If you can jump on that and address Nate. Sure. So first, I, I uh, absolutely want to agree with Nate. What happened on the on the sixth should have it should have never happened, right? And I think what we see though is is you you, you called for the impeachment trial as you know a chance for unity, a, na a time of national unity, right? But what we actually should have seen is earlier after the results of November third, we should have seen a similar um, call uh, like. Pelosi is right now for a 9-11 style commission on the uh, results of the election, right? So instead of uh, simply telling roughly 50% of the American electorate that, you know, who who are believe that their votes are being manipulated or not counted accurately, but we should have said- believe votes are being manipulated? This is Listen, listen to me. Can, can I finish? I, I let you talk. How, how long did I let you talk uninterrupted and you're uninterrupted or you're interrupting me now? I, I don't think that's actually uh, very polite of you or politically correct. But what I am trying to say though is 
Democrats and Republicans should have came together after the election and said, listen, we're going to have a clean and clear audit that allows both sides to air their grievances, just like a trial would have done, right? Instead of to let this boiling point, let this uh, holding this tiger by the tail, we should have never got there, should have never got there. But instead, we see something that should have never happened, right, is these concerns of roughly 50% of the American electorate being thrown under the rug. It should have never happened. And just to, you know, with or without Trump, uh, or for, for for better or for worse, you know, the Republican Party will never be the same uh, because of Trump, right? Uh, so they're very much, we're very much in a deciding factor of where we're going to move on from here, right? And to simply... Um, throw away the beliefs and the passions that these people have for a man, uh, like I said, for better or for worse, is a mistake on uh, the representatives who voted to uh, convict because they were sent there to represent their constituents who obviously did not agree with them in terms of their vote on um, impeaching Donald Trump. Um, so, and a lot of these representatives don't have any intention of running again, number one, and simply don't care. So again, it's kind of backstabbing their constituents who sent them to represent them. And instead they're representing their own interests and uh, similarly uh, like Mitch McConnell. So th that's all I have to say, but I, I really appreciate, you know, being able to finish my statement uninterrupted. Yeah, and if I can add in just two real quick, and first off, it's uh, Nathaniel, thank you for, you know, you know sh sharing that it's, uh, this is why I think forums like the ones we have are really important, right, to get at the heart of the issue. At a school like ours, it's kind of very difficult to have across the aisle conversations uh, about this because the, we are ide ideologically predisposed to view the other as an other who cannot be reasoned or like talked with. And it's uh, so yeah, it's just a real, a real. We really do appreciate that, and it's uh, and I second you know Ethan's point too. It's uh, Everyone agrees that what happened at the Capitol was obscene, and it shouldn't shouldn't have happened, right? The, a lot of, but the, by the same token, there was a, you know, a lot of us who had been concerned and thought there were reasonable election irregularities. There was an opportunity to air those at Congress, but because there were people who thought to take uh, violence as a means towards that end, that civil reasonable dialogue was not allowed uh, to be had fundamentally. And it's, uh, I think we, sh we should be able to come together and condemn violence and hold actors accountable if there were, you know, like it's, I think, you know, the president maybe indirectly, um, you know, maybe shouldn't have pushed it after the legal issue was done. But by the same token, it's, we, it's, uh, it's clear that given the evidence that there was no legal insurrection uh, legal incitement, and there was no legal insurrection apart from just a lot of reportedly. I don't know if you are following the trials, but and it's uh, and even if you think that you know impeachment is a uh, political rather than a high crimes and misdemeanor issue, the way the founders maybe intended or maybe debated about uh, the issue, it's important that whatever the standard that we use, that it be applied across the aisle. It's uh, if you believe that the president reasonably incited the riot, you have to hold. Bernie Sanders accountable for inciting violence against Steve Scalise, for example, for claiming that Republicans were going to kill people by uh, taking away their health care. It's a Kamala Harris, for example, posting bail right on Antifa and Black Lives Matter uh, rioters, for example. 
It's they're using fight like hell, right? 70 times over the course of her political career, just standard uh, political rhetoric that had serious consequences over the summer. It's uh, on these political grounds, there are immediate grounds for uh, the impeachment of both Kamala Harris and President Biden. We have to ask ourselves if, if that is the road that we want uh, to walk. It's uh, violence should be condemned right unilaterally. But if we're going to hold the president accountable, we are also going to hold uh, the Black Lives Matter and Antifa rioters who are responsible for the much more dramatic and violent uh, summer that uh, we had people who were complicit in false narratives of uh, systemic racism, which we can have debates about, right, reasonably. And it's, uh, but it's uh, to a lot of Republicans, this is the line where that has to uh, be drawn. It's either violence is acceptable for all or it's acceptable for none. And if there are issues which are incredibly controversial, we need to come together and talk about them rather than otherizing the other. If there's a this travesty of systemic racism and police brutality, we want to come together and uh, address it and come to the truth of it. If there's election fraud, we come together and we debate it. We don't uh, assume ourselves as inherently having the truth and try to censor those who um, are perpetuating this uh, attack on democracy, whatever that might mean, and inflaming things even further. It was only in 2016, for example, that uh, this uh, Russian collusion was, you know, supposedly it's uh, they'd undermined legitimacy of the 2016 uh, uh, election. And now you sort of have this similar, and there's a why, why is it that we can't have conversations about the truths, the truth of the matter without there being this violent uh, blow up? There should have never been a violent blow up. There should have, people should have had the opportunity to have their grievances heard, right? You know, it's Martin Luther King, you know, violence is the language of the unheard, but why is it that had to get to that position? Why is it that people felt so dramatically about their voices not being heard on the airwaves that they felt that they had to, you know, select few actors took it upon themselves to violate the Capitol? It's, uh, it's an incredibly egregious offense, and it's just, there was, there was go ahead. There two court cases many of them heard by judges appointed by Donald Trump that litigated these charges of fraud. They were dismissed. So this Nancy Pelosi should have come up with a some kind of panel to look at it. We're, we're, I mean, that's ridiculous. That's out of process. The yeah. process was go to court, submit your evidence, the evidence wasn't sufficient to even have the case heard in many of these jurisdictions. So the, the president of the United States was impeached while he was the president of the United States. He called the uh, insurrectors to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. On January 6th, he told them to go to the Capitol. After the Capitol was under attack, and after Kevin McCarthy tells him that um, the line of succession is in, uh, in physical jeopardy, he does nothing. So these false equivalents about Black Lives Matter and Antifa, nothing in the history of the United States mirrors what happened on January 6th. 
and and we are wrapping up, gentlemen. But Nate, I think you had a point. But before I move on, um, you know, I, I appreciate what Stephen said about you know the form, and that's what this was designed to do: create a, a a repository for people of all political perspectives to come and have a civil dialogue. So I appreciate this conversation. It's been rich. It's been enlightening. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but you know, the same question that I had, I don't think it was answered though. Um, you know, if you're going to censor Richard Burr, Cassidy, um, why not censor Major Tar uh, Taylor Green? And in the same vein, because the follow-up with what Professor Foster alluded to, does the far left really have the same power that the far right seems to have in their party? Um, Nate, I think, and then someone else can jump in and we'll wrap up. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, just real quickly. Oh, sorry. And now I'll, I'll kick it in the okay. But yeah, just on the Republican side, it's uh, it's uh, I think we're very good about uh, calling out our own, for example, when uh, it's uh, how am I forgetting his name? I, I just had, but Stephen. Uh, it's uh, King. Yeah, Steve King. Right. It's uh, he made a joke on the air, right, with. Yo, white supremacist undertones, and it was a joke of foresight. He didn't intend it, but we held him accountable uh, for that, irrespective of the intent. And we stripped all of his uh, committee assignments. It's uh, even, um, for example, there's been a for those of us on, on college campuses, there's been an uptick in the alt right, just uh, people with this sort of uh, and you know who perpetrate these conspiracies about Israel, for example, and the Jewish people kind of like, you know, walking toe to toe with uh, uh, BDS, for example, and perpetrating these anti-Semitic narratives. And we've gone publicly and uh, debated them and uh, refuted them and called them out. And so we had uh, Ben Shapiro at our university uh, last uh, in the fall. And this is ex week, ex the expressive talk was uh, condemning uh, this alt-right, it's that they aren't, aren't representative of our values, for example, and um, I'm of the opinion it's uh, with Majory Teller Green that maybe some action needs to be taken, per se, but I it's, I do think, though, that this is something that we can still have. Some of what she said are, is egregious, for example, um, and maybe some action should be, be taken on that, and as Republicans, I think that that's something that we should seriously consider. Um, it's unfortunately, it's just these types of moves aren't, at least we think, and maybe you guys can correct us, taken as often on the left when Ilhan Omar, for example, perpetuates uh, conspiracy theories about the Jews and Israel controlling the flow of uh, money. That's a very serious, or even Rashida Tlaib is a very serious anti-Semitic tropes that they're perpetuating and when have they ever been censored? If we're going to censor Nadri Taylor Green, uh, we are also need we need to censor these people as well. Uh, so uh, first off we are since we're over time, you know, we don't have uh, we don't have the time to get into the loaded question of uh, Israel critique of that country's government versus uh, crossing that line into naked anti-Semitism. But it is important to mention that uh, uh, the the comments that uh, Talib and Omar made were roundly criticized, not just by Republicans 
but by Nancy Pelosi herself, also Democrats do hold their own to account. Uh, during the Me Too wave, but more and more. Resigned. He's no longer in the Senate. Yeah, during that wave, when more and more uh, survivors of sexual misconduct were finding their voices to say something horrible happened to me when someone spoke up against Al Franken, Kirsten, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who ran for president as a Democrat uh, last year, was the first to say, uh, didn't even waste time, didn't let 24 hours go by before she said Al Franken must leave the Senate. And Al Franken left the Senate because he decided that uh, the that a subsequent investigation into his, his actions was not worth the distraction, uh, both for the chamber and for the people that he was representing. Uh, when Marjorie Taylor Greene is, uh, becomes the second uh, Republican member of Congress in two years to approach a, a, to approach a uh, uh, member of Congress on the other side who happened to and verbally assault them. Remember last year, Ted Yoho uh, walked up to AOC and referred and uh, referred to her with language that I will not repeat on this podcast because uh, it's not language that should ever be used in polite company. Uh, Yoho wasn't condemned by his party. Marjorie Taylor Greene, there was a closed caucus vote for uh, what was going to happen with Republicans uh, on whether or not Liz Cheney should be removed from her leadership post. And when uh, Representative Green was introduced, there was a standing ovation. It wasn't, uh, uh, Republicans didn't come around to removing her from her committee assignments until uh, Democrats started calling for it. It's also important to acknowledge that these uh, concerns about voter fraud happened because uh, Trump and Cruz and Hawley all deliberately stoked these flames. Uh, Trump spent uh, months leading up to the election calling mail-in voting which was the safest and easiest way to vote in a uh, vote during a pandemic, inherently fraudulent. He, he instructed his postmaster general to slow down the mail as much as possible so that on election night with, uh, with the status of several states still in play, he would be able to declare victory. And when he did, to his credit, a lot of Republicans said, dial it back, Mr. President. It was way too early for you to make that kind of declaration. Uh, you know, we had states like Pennsylvania and, and Wisconsin and Michigan, making it a matter of state law for them to not count uh, absentee and mailed-in ballots until election night, which is why we, it took so long to get those results and contributed to that perception that there was widespread fraud in this election. It's, it's not a coincidence that the places that Trump accused of fraud were large cities with large minority populations. It's why, that, it's why this was... Uh, it's why the people that uh, came into the uh, Capitol were mostly aligned with the far right, with white supremacy. Like we're talking about the Proud Boys, one of whom was actually released from custody until his trial, uh, despite the fact that federal prosecutors are worried that because he's free, he now has the opportunity to incite more violence. It's also the fact that uh, courts have held for years that uh, this inflammatory language uh, is incitement when it leads to immediate harm. Uh, so for Trump to have this pressure campaign, for, uh, for the Georgia runoffs to be centered uh, on, on whether or not Purdue and Loeffler would fight for Trump, you know, it's, it's about standing, it, it was the party's opportunity to say, okay, we've gone too far. Maybe we should dial it back a little bit. Maybe we should try to find a little bit of consensus. There was no need to have a commission 
for an election that everyone agreed was free and fair. There were less irregularities in this election in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin than there were four years ago. And Democrats were highly, highly angry that Hillary Clinton lost and Trump won. But you know what they did on, uh, the day after inauguration day? They knitted some pink hats and, and had a nice little stroll around Washington, D.C. They didn't storm the Capitol and, and demand uh, the hanging of Joe Biden for not uh, finding some votes for Hillary Clinton because Joe Biden was presiding over the uh, vote count, the electoral vote counting at that time in his uh, constitutional role as vice president. You know, there is, uh, there are times when people on both sides go too far, but they are held to account. Democrats are doing a pretty good job of holding their own to account. Al Franken was effectively forced to resign. Ilhan Omar and AOC and Rashid Tlaib faced criticism from party leadership every time, every time they step too far out of line. You know, it, it's what happens when, when parties are big tents. But for Republicans to have, for congressional Republicans, I'm not talking about the nationwide party, I'm talking about the people on Capitol Hill, for them to, you know, all be in agreement that January 6th was a terrible, terrible day, but not take any of the steps to hold any of the actors accountable for it, uh, is really just kind of talking out of both sides of, of their mouths. Which decision are you going to go? Because you cannot toe this line forever. Well, it's a very easy solution. I think it's you hold the individual actors who were directly there and caused the violence. It's uh, there's just, I mean, it's like you use the the the, the case court the case played. You know, it wasn't you know a legal case, but even the political arguments they played out, and it's it just didn't meet a bar of incitement according to the law, and it isn't even not in even insurrection. Right, this is a standard or bar that has never been litigated uh, since the Civil War. And it's the question is, do we want to really appeal to that for political means? It's I think it's a very dangerous path for us to walk. So that's that. Well, I just want to thank each of you gentlemen for what you brought to the political mic. This was such a dynamic conversation. I think one of the most uh, you know politically diverse conversations we've had. And I really um, am grateful to you, Stephen, and to you, Ethan, for joining from Stanford, the Stanford Republican uh, College. Uh, 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 club. I just want to thank you both. Uh, Mr. Brian McFadden of the Pigskin Political Podcast, the Pigskin Party. <laughs> Very interesting <laughs> podcast. Yeah, go follow it. it. Yeah, go follow it. I want to encourage my viewers to go check it out. Uh, they're on Instagram. Um, and Professor Foster, always a treat. Nate, always a treat. Uh, I want to thank you each for watching, for tuning in, for being engaged. And I would encourage uh, my viewers, like I always do, to stay active, stay engaged, stay plugged in to the news. Um, stay away from sketchy news sites, stay into real news sources, uh, and make sure that you are doing your job as a citizen uh, to be informed. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 31 of The Political Mic. Thank you all so much.